0: The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com.
1: We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis. And today, the next passage we come to is Genesis 15 1 through 1616. 16. So I'll be reading a selection of verses from that passage. And God's word says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus and Abram said behold you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir and behold the word of the Lord came to him this man shall not be your heir your very own son shall be your heir and he brought him outside and said look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know? that I shall possess it. He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these things, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had bore him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. To Abraham, or I'm sorry, Abram. May God bless the reading of his word.
0: Let's pray. Father, what a blessing it is uh, to be gathered together around your word with uh, the opportunity to immerse ourselves in it. This morning, uh, I feel like we're right in front of a just a wonderful steak dinner that we have here. So we pray that your spirit would be present and at work in our midst, uh, causing the truths and teachings we encounter to find a place in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've lived for very long at all, uh, you have undoubtedly had people make promises to you, but then not follow through on those promises. I remember this one time when I was in high school, I was working at a local supermarket bagging groceries, and we had this, this lady uh, bring a large cartful of groceries to one of the checkout counters. And as we were uh, scanning each of her items and putting them into bags, she uh, told us that that she had forgotten her credit card out in her car and needed to go out and get it real quick and would be right back. So we kept on scanning her groceries and getting them into bags and, and uh, waiting for her to, to come back in and pay for them. But after a little bit of, of time went by, a few minutes, she still hadn't come back inside. So you know, we figured she's probably looking around at her car for a credit card, can't find it, whatever, it's under the seat. Uh, but then... A few more minutes went by, and so we were kind of starting to wonder where she was, because the groceries were just sitting there on the counter, and the cashier was having to direct other customers to other checkout lanes, and, and we were waiting. And then, after even more time went by, the thought finally dawned on us, you know, maybe she's not coming back. And sure enough, she never came back. I guess uh, she was just too embarrassed at not having a way to pay for the groceries or forgot her credit card at home or whatever, to come back inside, and so she just went back home without even telling us. So, at least to say, we weren't all that thrilled about having to put all those groceries back on the shelves. But that's just the way life is, right? I mean, sometimes people make promises to us, but then don't follow through On those promises. And in our main passage here in Genesis, that's what Abram was starting to wonder about the promise God had made to him. You know, back in chapter 12, God had promised several things to Abram, including that he would make Abram into a great nation. Yet for years and years, Abram and his wife Sarai continued to be childless. So Abram started to wonder about whether God was going to come through on his promise. And that's where the story picks up in Genesis 15, 1 through 3. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continued childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Now let's just pause here and recognize that this is a very understandable concern for Abram to have. know, God had promised to make of him a great nation, yet it's kind of hard to be a great nation when you don't even have a single child. So I think it's very understandable that Abram's struggling with doubt about whether God would come through on his promise. And maybe you've been there as well, or maybe you're there right now, and perhaps you're experiencing something in your life that's incredibly difficult and is even bringing you close to your breaking point, and you're struggling with doubt about God's promises. Maybe you know, for example, how Romans 8.28 says that all things work together for good to those who love God, but you honestly don't see how anything good could come out of what you're currently experiencing. Maybe you're like, you know, I know what God said in the Bible, but I just don't see it right now or see how it could even be possible. Well, that's where Abram was as well. We then find God's reply in verses 4 and 5. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, you know, Eliezer, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And God brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring so God reaffirms his promise to Abram, and even gives him a visual illustration of how numerous his descendants will be, right? as numerous as the stars in the sky. Verse 6 then records Abram's response. It says, and he believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. And that statement brings us to the main idea of this passage, which is that Abram believed God's promise, and was therefore counted As righteous. Again, Abram believed God's promise and was therefore counted as righteous. See, Abram trusted God even when he had no idea what God was up to in his life and saw no definitive evidence up to that point of God acting to keep his promise. To borrow language from 2 Corinthians 5 7, Abram walked by faith not by sight he believed God for what his eyes couldn't see so what situation do you need to give to the Lord this morning and say Lord I entrust this situation to you I believe that you're good and wise and faithful and I believe that your promises are true even though I can't understand why this is happening to me right now or, or why I'm having to suffer in this way. Guys, that's what real faith looks like. It looks like trusting God for what's not yet a visible reality. And then still in verse six, how did God respond to Abram's faith? It says that Abram believed the Lord and what? The Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Now, this verse is actually one of the most important verses in the Old Testament. Perhaps even the most important verse that teaches us how a person is saved from their sins and made right with God. It's quoted no less than four times in the New Testament. In Romans 4.3, Romans 4.22, Galatians 3.6, and James 2.23. And the key word in the verse is that word counted. God counted Abram's faith to him as righteousness. Other translations say that God credited it to him or reckoned it to him as righteousness. Uh, the Greek version of the Old Testament uses a word here that was often used of financial transactions, where a certain amount of money would be credited to someone's account. Uh, for example, not that long ago, I signed up for a, a, a checking account at a new institution, and it came with a $300 sign-on bonus for new customers. So it's not that I earned that $300, but rather that the $300 was credited to my account. Right? Or at least I hope it was. You should probably check on that. But that's the sense in which Abram's faith was credited as righteousness. So understand that it's not that Abram was considered righteous because he acted righteously and uh, demonstrated righteousness through a lifestyle of righteous deeds. Rather, he simply believed God, and God counted that faith to him as righteousness, just like I didn't earn the $300. It was instead credited, hopefully, to my account. Now, this sense of the term counted or, or credited is brought out very emphatically by Paul In Romans 4, 1 through 5, he writes, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Quoting our text in Genesis here, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. It's obligatory. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Abram's righteous status was imparted to him, not as a wage that was deserved, but as a gift. That was undeserved. And that's a great reminder to us that faith is not only the means by which people are saved today in New Testament times, but also the way people were saved back in the Old Testament. You know, when I was a new Christian, I used to think that people in the New Testament are saved from their sins through faith, but that people back in the Old Testament were saved by keeping the Old Testament law. That's what I just assumed, I guess, but eventually I learned that that's not the case at all. The only way anyone in the Bible is saved from the judgment their sins deserve and is able to be right with God and have a relationship with God is through faith. Now, in the Old Testament, they obviously didn't yet have all the details about Jesus and his death on the cross to pay for our sins and his subsequent resurrection, so their faith was more general in nature. They simply had faith in whatever God had revealed about himself so far up to that point in history. So, for example, Adam, back in the Garden of Eden, right? Adam had faith that the same God who covered his uh, physical nakedness in Genesis 3.21 would also provide some sort of covering spiritually for his sin. And then all the rest of the patriarchs in Genesis, such as Abram here in our main passage, and also Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, likewise had a very general faith in God's goodness and his mercy and in the promises he made to them. And that very general faith was sufficient to save them. Then, several hundred years later, Moses had a faith in God that was more specific. For example, the Old Testament law uh, that God had revealed about himself to Moses included a sacrificial system in which the blood of animals sacrificed on an altar uh, would atone, at least symbolically atone, for the sin's Of God's people. So this means that Moses had faith in God to save him, not only on the basis of God's general goodness and mercy, but specifically on the basis of blood sacrifice. And you could go on and on throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Nobody in the Old Testament was saved by law keeping, but rather through faith in God a faith that incorporated whatever revelation about God was available at that time. Although they didn't yet know the name of Jesus or have all the details about Jesus' ministry, they were still able to be saved simply by trusting in whatever God had revealed to them. And this is what the Apostle Paul meant, if you're looking for biblical support of all this, this is what the Apostle Paul meant when he told the people of Athens in Acts 17.30, about the times of ignorance that God overlooked. God didn't require people in the Old Testament to have faith in things that hadn't been revealed yet, but simply required faith that was of a more general nature. However, now that Jesus has come, our faith has to be a very specific faith. We need to have faith in Jesus to save us from our sins because he paid the price for those sins when he died on the cross and because he then defeated sin entirely when he resurrected from the dead. So general faith is no longer sufficient. Rather, our faith has to be directed toward Jesus specifically. As Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father, many of you know this, except through me right and we could probably paraphrase that except through faith in me so again the point is that wherever you look in the bible nobody's ever saved by trying to be good enough for god or attempting to earn his favor through their own moral accomplishments that's impossible because in order to do that understand you would have to be absolutely perfect You see, James 2.10 states that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. I mean, think about that. That means if you keep 99.9% of God's moral standards but fail to keep just 0.1% of those standards, then you're just as guilty and just as disqualified from heaven as the person who doesn't do anything right and who rebels against every single one of God's commands. Now, I once heard it compared to a chain. A chain is only as strong as what? That's right, its weakest link. So if you're using a chain to pull something and just one of the links on that chain breaks, well, then whatever you're pulling isn't going to be pulled any longer. If one link on that chain fails, the whole chain fails. Similarly, if we fail to reach God's standards of moral perfection in just one area, it's as if we've failed in every area. That's why nobody's ever saved by their own efforts at being good enough for God. Rather, it's only through faith. And nowadays, faith in Jesus specifically that people are saved. You know, we have to believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he was dying to pay for our sins. God's justice demands that sin be punished, but the good news of the gospel is because is that Jesus suffered that punishment for us. So we wouldn't have to. He then resurrected from the dead in order to demonstrate that the Father Had indeed accepted his sacrifice. And in order to be saved from the judgment we deserve and experience eternal life with God in heaven, we have to believe that and put our trust in Jesus alone as our all sufficient Savior. Then, returning to our main passage in Genesis, the fact that we're saved by faith is emphasized even further in the subsequent verses. Look with me at Genesis 15, 7 through 12. And he, God, uh, said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these. Cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then look down at verses 17 through 21. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So you might be wondering, what in the world is going on here? I mean, we're like cutting animals in half and arranging the halves in these lines. I mean, what? on earth is this? I mean, it definitely sounds like the kind of thing that would make the neighbors call the cops, right? I mean, in fact, I'd probably call the cops if I saw someone doing this in my neighborhood. So what is going on? Well, there was a custom back in ancient Mesopotamia that whenever two parties wanted to solemnize a covenant or enter into a very formal agreement with each other, that they would kill an animal, cut it into two pieces, and then separate those pieces so that both parties could walk through the two pieces together. And the point of that ritual was to illustrate in a a very dramatic way that both parties were calling down a curse upon themselves if either of them should violate whatever covenant they were making. By walking in between the two halves of the animal, each of the parties was essentially saying, if I don't follow through on this covenant then let me be like this butchered animal. So, yeah, it was pretty intense. However, if you notice, what we see here in Genesis 15 deviates from that pattern, doesn't it? God and Abram don't walk through the animal pieces together. Instead, in verse 12, God puts Abram into a deep sleep. So Abram's not doing anything. He's completely passive. And then in verse 17, God passes through the animal pieces by himself. So that's what the smoking fire pot and flaming torch represent. In the Bible, God's presence is often symbolized by uh, fire. So while Abram's sleeping, God passes through the animal pieces alone. It's a graphic picture of how God was taking it upon himself to fulfill this covenant and keep his promise to Abram. God had promised on several occasions to make Abram into a great nation and give his descendants the land of Canaan. And in case there was any doubt, God now makes it very clear in these verses that that promise is unconditional. It's not dependent on Abram being worthy of the promise or achieving a certain level of moral excellence. Instead, it's a promise that's based not on Abram, but on God alone. It's what theologians like to call an unconditional or unilateral covenant. The covenant would be kept because God himself would make sure it was kept. He was even willing to call down a curse upon himself if it wasn't kept. Yet that's not all, because this unilateral covenant points forward in time to another unilateral covenant that we now know as the gospel. Yet in the gospel, we play a role that's kind of similar to Abram's role in Genesis 15, where he's fast asleep. We have nothing of value to offer God and no ability whatsoever to make ourselves acceptable in his sight. Ephesians 2.1 actually states that we're dead in our sins with no spiritual vital signs of any kind. Yet Jesus does for us what we could never do for ourselves. He accomplishes everything that needs to be accomplished in his sinless life, Sacrificial death and victorious resurrection. So, have you yet put your trust entirely in Jesus for rescue? Have you humbly acknowledged before God that, as the theologian Jonathan Edwards says, the only contribution you can make to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary and that you therefore stand in desperate need of Jesus and Jesus alone? And have you come to rest in his finished work on your behalf? And then, having been made right with God through faith, we're subsequently called to live a a, a life, to, to walk in this mentality. For the rest of our lives, reminding ourselves each day that God loves and accepts us, not because of anything we do, but because of what Jesus has already done. Through Jesus, the Bible says, we're adopted into God's family, and nothing we do can ever change that. Yet, for some reason, it seems like we still have some trouble wrapping our minds around this reality many times. It seems like we're frequently tempted to revert back to that mentality of God's love and acceptance being based not on Jesus, but on us. And on how good of a Christian we manage to be on any given day. You know, Dane Ortland in his book Gentle and Lowly, compares it to a boy trying to earn his place in the family. He writes, picture a 12-year-old boy growing up in a healthy, loving family. As he matures through no fault of his parents, he finds himself trying to figure out how to really assure himself a place in the family. One week, he tries to create a new birth certificate for himself. The next week, he determines to spend all his extra time scrubbing the kitchen clean. The following week, he determines to do all he can to imitate his dad. One day, his parents questioned his strange behavior. And he replies, I'm just doing all I can to secure my place in the family, guys. How would his father respond? Calm yourself, my dear son. There's nothing you could possibly do to earn your place among us. You are our son, period. You didn't do anything at the start to get into our family, and you can't do anything now to get out of our family. Live your life knowing that your sonship is settled and irreversible. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to earn our place in God's family or maintain his love and acceptance by being a really good Christian. Instead, because of what Jesus has done on our behalf, we can rest in the fact that God loves us just as much on our worst day as he does on our best day. And sometimes we really do have some pretty bad days. Honestly, sometimes we even have entire seasons where we're just not what we should be spiritually. We see one of those times in Abram and Sarai's lives in the very next chapter, in Genesis 16, that they waver in their faith and Doubt that God will come through on his promise all on his own, and therefore try to take things into their own hands. Look with me at Genesis 16, 1 through 4. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain off children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. It then says at the end of the chapter, in verses 15 and 16, And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years when Hagar bore Ishmael. To Abram. So again, we find Abram taking things into his own hands. He had done so back in chapter 12 in Egypt, and now he does so again. God had promised Abram offspring, and since Sarai wasn't conceiving, Abram tries to obtain offspring through Hagar. In spite of the faith he had exhibited in the previous chapter, he now exhibits at least a partial lapse of faith. And by the way, don't we so often have that same oscillating tendency? One day we're hot, the next day we're cold. One day we're enjoying an exhilarating experience of God's presence on a spiritual mountaintop, and the next we're struggling in a spiritual valley. One day we're walking in faith, And the next, we're wrestling with doubt. I don't know about you, but I just find Abram to be so relatable in that regard. And yet, even when we struggle and stumble, God still loves us. Even when we take our lives into our own hands and and, uh, disobey God's commands and disregard his word, He's still committed to fulfilling his promises to us. You now, as we'll see in the subsequent chapters in Genesis, God's promises to Abram were still valid even when Abram experienced subsequent lapses in faith. Because remember, it was a unilateral covenant, right? Just as it is for us. That means we might waver, but God never does. No matter how much we stumble, how much we fall, or how inconsistent we are, God continues to love those of us who are Christians as his own children. In fact, his love is such that it actually goes out to us all the more when we sin against him. We catch a glimpse of this, uh, this reality in Jeremiah thirty-one twenty. Speaking of Israel during a time when Israel was very rebellious, God says, Is Israel my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Think about that. My heart yearns for him, God says. Even in our sin, that's the disposition of God's heart toward us. The 17th century Puritan theologian Thomas Goodwin writes with reference to this verse, There is comfort in that your very sins move God to pity more than anger for for the believer." Christ takes part with you and is far from being provoked against you as all his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it. Indeed, his pity is increased the more toward you, even as the heart of a father is to a child who has some loathsome disease or as one is to a member of his own body that has leprosy. He hates not the member for it is his own flesh, but the disease. And that provokes him to pity the part affected all the more. What shall not be to our benefit when our sins against Christ shall be turned as motives to him to pity us all the more? So again, contrary to what we often assume, God doesn't hold us as Christians at arm's length when we sin against him or or make us endure some period of being on probation before we can come back to him. Instead, his heart of love goes out to us all the more when we stumble and fall. Guys, do you see how the gospel is such good news for sinners like you and me? We can also take great comfort in the words of Jesus in John six thirty seven, where he states, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Consider those last words. I will never cast out. Not, I won't cast them out as long as they don't do anything too terrible. Or I won't cast them out as long as I don't find anything in their hearts that's too ugly. Or I won't cast them out as long as they don't surpass the limit of what I'm willing to put up with. No, Jesus says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. As Dane Orland writes, we cannot present a reason for Christ to finally close off his heart to his own sheep. No such reason exists. Every human friend has a limit. If we offend enough, if a relationship gets damaged enough, if we betray enough times, we are cast out. The walls go up. With Christ, our sins and weaknesses are the very resume items that qualify us to approach him. Nothing but coming to him is required. First at conversion and then a thousand times thereafter. Friends, this is the love that God has for his children. It's the love he had for Abram back in Genesis that caused him to remain faithful to his promises even throughout all of Abram's floundering and failing. And it's the love that he has for us as his children today.